Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. I am your host, Jacqueline. And I'm Augustus. And together we are the Galaxy Electric. Today we have a special interview as part of our interview series that we're doing right now with uh, people who are alive, as opposed to most of our episodes about people who are dead. Uh, today we have... Pretty basic qualifier. Yeah. Um, out of the UK, we have Robin the Fog. Uh who has a new album out under uh, his moniker HowlRound or his duo project HowlRound and um, another collaboration with HowlRound and DJ Food under the new Obsolescence, which you cannot get as far as I know, sold out in seconds. There is a reissue being worked on at the moment. The, the sleeves have just been designed and the vinyl will be manufactured at some point. They're Amazing. Just, when it up? can be, right? Can we sign up for that now? Yeah, please? you've heard it here we first. We missed the, the first one, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think I missed it. But obviously, when I clicked, it was gone. See what I can do. I'll see, I'll see if I can put in a good word with the uh, with, with castles in space. Uh, they sort of they hold the keys to the closet, but I'm, exactly. I'm sure I can pull a few favors. <laughs> we appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, oh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here, and it's good to still be alive. Yes, to so many I met the mark. <laughs> yeah, that's so. I feel, yeah, I fulfilled the basic requirement of being on the show. I Amazing. Did. <laughs> well, to be honest, what first sparked this was a, a thread that you have put up, you know, looking for uh, people who are currently working with tape. I believe it was performing with tape was the stipulation. Yeah, using tape as a, as a performative tool, um, because, you know, we, we got I got a lot of answers that were things like, you know, people who have used a tape machine on stage or have uh, recorded their stuff onto tape to kind of grunge it up and give it a nice fuzzy analog warmth. Um, and that's fine, but it was more people that actually had their work uh, shaped by tape, actually mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the result uh, being used. And someone suggested that the, the Beastie Boys used a tape loop wrapped around a broom handle, which is would would fit the remit. Um, didn't make um, didn't make the final cut of my article, unfortunately. But that 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 what that type of work, the, yeah, did the shape of the of the performance. Do we have um, proof that this happened? I would love to. Uh, I need to look into it. It was a comment on the thread, uh, but I would imagine that is quite common because I believe uh, Miles Davis when he was recording, I think it was on the corner in the 70s, I think he had a similar thing, or well, his producer, Tio Marcero, had a thing where he had tape loops set up all over the place, and tape loops tend to need restraints, and brooms mm -hmm. could be, actually be just the thing. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at Vuta van Veldhoven's stuff, he has these kind of spools kind of restraining the tape and just spiraling in midair very beautifully. Yeah. And I, Marcus I Fisher as well, that. I've seen yeah. that technique. Yeah. And I do not know how they do it, because when my machine's trying, I've tried it. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. tough to balance. It's like a physics experiment. Like yeah. <laughs> I have never managed to get that like level where they just sort of are entirely autonomous and just look very beautiful and elegant. I've never managed to do that. It's always literally me sort of like leaning across three machines trying to keep uh, the tension going. But I suppose that 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 in itself makes for quite an interesting performance and quite an interesting sound. But it yeah, lacks the glacial beauty of people like Veldhoven or Marcus Fisher or that sort of stuff. It makes me feel so good to know that it's hard to get the spinning tape reel thing going. Like I was, I thought I was a complete failure. I was just going to keep my mouth shut, but. <laughs> failure actually, I think is a, is a super important part of this. I think um, a lot of the time you'll get 
you know, you won't get what you were expecting and you'll end up with something that sounds completely different to what you wanted. And I've had that happen to me. I've gone, no, that's not what I want. Oh, actually, that's quite interesting. Happy accidents. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff I'm doing at the moment has this kind of really sort of ragged, kind of raw, sort of slurry sound. Um, Because what I've started doing is playing a, a loop across two or three machines and one of them is playing it normally, so the playhead is properly engaged and it's playing it how it should. But the others are just rubbing against the playhead because the tension isn't there. And so you get this kind of scribbly sound and and it's almost an accident, or the discovery, it was almost accidental. But then I started to realise how beautiful that sounded, that kind of like, um, there was just this rawness to it. So I think failure actually is often um, just a sort of weird version of success that you hadn't figured on, you know like truly working with tape means that you have to deal with whatever happens and you have to have that level of unpredictability and, and that failure is, is, um, is, or what could be perceived as failure as part Mm -hmm. of the performance. This is the terrifying thing about me doing shows is that when I play, that's what happens. Whatever happens, happens. And if it all goes wrong, that's part of the performance. That is, that's it. And it might not feel a very nice or valid or interesting part of the performance, but we've, risk has been incurred like uh if that's is that the right word i suppose it is um risks have been taken um yeah uh and if it goes wrong or if it goes awry that is just and and you have to just deal with it and try and sort of rein it in or or well i say this a lot but i think the the motto I, i try and tell myself and i forget it every time and then remember it every time is that the real discipline comes from letting go because we all want to control what we're doing really tightly and go yes this is me i'm making this happen but sometimes the most interesting stuff comes from setting things up and and letting it go and not interfering you know and just seeing what happens and then every now and again like you know making an adjustment but you know it doesn't make you any less the author of the work i don't think because you're allowing it to happen but it's nice sometimes just to um be surprised. Also, I think if you knew what you were going to get, you probably wouldn't bother doing it. <laughs> yeah. You certainly like, wouldn't be playing around with tape if that's what you were, you were yeah, exactly. already knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine uh, who uh, makes, uh, she's an amazing sound artist called Sound Art Hannah. Um, well worth checking out. But she does this thing, and I'm paraphrasing her a little bit here, but she makes radios out of um, toilet roll holders, you know, the cardboard holders, um, kind of shortwave things. Uh, again, I'm uh, I'm paraphrasing here. This is a conversation we had a few weeks back. Uh, and then she was telling me that she had all these people like commenting, oh, well, you know, the, the proper way to do it is this. Or, well, if you're going to try that, surely you should be doing it this way. And you think, well, you know, she's making shortwave radios or they are making shortwave radios out of toilet roll holders. If you wanted to do it properly, you'd just buy a radio. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like a whole experiment is to see what happens when you do it. That's what's interesting. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting spin on the idea of like, we have this opportunity to connect with each other and we can all be collaborative. And then there's also a limit to that. Yeah. <laughs> How I, much input you can take. And is it, you know, at the end of the day, you need to be able to just have your own explorations. Yeah, I think I really be think happy I, with whatever happens. Yeah. And you have to be prepared for a certain amount of it to go wrong. But the mm-hmm. amount of times I've had that and I've gone, well, there's nothing there that I can use. And then maybe I've, come back to it like three weeks later and gone, Do you know, actually some of this is pretty good. Um, there was a, God, there was a thing I did. Um, when I did A Creek in Time, which was the soundtrack to Stephen McInerney's film, we had this, I had this session where he said, we need one more track for the film. 
and I was up all night for well uh, trying to get the machines were kind of running down a bit they were actually all going off for a service the next day um so they were all running a bit down and they were a bit a bit creaky and a bit cranky and everything was going wrong and they were crackling and I was literally going no 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 that's not what I wanted and I went to bed that night just going oh what a disaster what a waste of time um I failed I should retire um <laughs> And the next morning, I, I I don't do I don't do small reactions to things. I tend to be like brilliant or no. Um, but uh, what happened was the next morning, Steve messaged me and he said, "Where's my final track? You promised me it." And I said, "Look, man, I'm only sending you this to show you that I wasn't just you know <laughs> my ass last night doing nothing." Uh, but it's a disaster. And ten minutes later, he came back with to me with, "This is the best thing you've ever sent me." And I thought he was a madman, uh, but. When I listened back to it a couple of days later with different ears, I was like, actually, you know what? This is this is totally the opposite of what I was trying to make. But it has, but it's interesting and it's in a different way. Um, ah, wow. An interesting spin on the same concept of like something you were setting out for uh, a result. You yeah. didn't get it. But then someone yeah. else heard it without that expectation and was like, yes. Exactly. And once you put on their ears, in a, in a sense. Even helps you change your perspective yeah. a bit. Yeah. Exactly. And and the thing is, and the bizarre thing is, I mean, I've been working as How Around for nearly 10 years now. It'll be 10 years next year. And this is yeah. something I have to remind myself over and over again. It, ha- it happens so often that I go, no, that's, I'm looking for something else. That isn't, this doesn't sound right. It's, it's, go- it's going wrong. The machines aren't behaving. But the weird thing is so often you go back to recordings that you just dismissed and you go, you know what, there is something in here. Maybe it's not perfect, but if I cut this bit away, if I just use this little two minutes here, um, mm-hmm. I literally muck around for two hours making sounds, putting loops together, creating all kinds of stuff. And it's, and it's all done on tape. I should say this, no digital effects, no artificial reverb, no pedals, no synths, no plugins. Um, it's all just tape. Sounds manipulate, acoustics or acoustically recorded sounds manipulated on tape with a little bit of tape delay, which is fed back into the I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Sure we do. And I think our audience would as well. But it's fun to hear. We love to talk about it. But I do have to explain this to people who go, well, you're putting reverb on it. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm creating a situation where it's recording itself and feeding it back anyway. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. But I just do that. And I don't think about what I'm doing because I I have a terrible tendency to overthink everything. So I don't think about it. I just make, make, and make, and make, and make. And then maybe two days, maybe a week, maybe two weeks later, I'll go back and I'll go, right, when did it work? And usually you'd be like, oh, there was a nice little five minute chunk there. There was a two minute chunk there. There was 30 seconds there that was good. Uh, Or maybe, you know, that could be a loop on its own. There's a nice little sample there that I could use. And often as well, like the the new album, Worm Food Delivery, both of those tracks are just one take because I just started. Uh, And when I released the Debatable Lands, right. I'm really worried that when I come around to doing the career retrospective, I'll be like, oh, wait, I've given this track about four different titles and put it on three <laughs> different releases. And, you know, because I keep everything is demo one, 180221 until it's given a name. Anyway. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, right. I mean, yes. But then, but all of those tracks were done in one take. Everything I try and do now in one take. So it's not even a question of remixing a lot of the time or. Uh, mixing a lot of it is just literally there was five minutes there that just coalesced into a really nice piece um so you know I'm getting lazier maybe (laughs) (laughs) well I'm curious you've talked about a lot of the limitations that you've put on yourself is in HowlRound we'll talk about I guess specifically and I'm curious what uh how you came to those limitations um simply that uh just gradually over time I think because Mm -hmm. um 
initially, um, when I only had one or two machines, a lot of the time what I would be doing is I'd have a single loop and I would just record randomly onto that and then dub that in for like a couple of minutes. So, and then, so the first album, a lot of the time is six or seven tracks of the same loop. So because they're the same loop at the same speed, they all kind of roughly fit, but also they don't always sometimes as well. So you get the kind of elements kind of like tectonic plates kind of shifting in and out of sync with each other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was made. So a lot of that was mixed, um, you know, I, but quite quickly, I would just go, right, I've got six tracks, bang, 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 bang. Uh, yeah, sounds good. Um, I'll mix that to the sides. Like, I'll, I'll shift that slightly. Oh, there it is. It's, it's fine. Um, but even then, I would, um, I tended to find that the first thing I did was the thing I went with. Literally, I would just, and, then, and I'd be like, yeah, actually, that sounds pretty good. Or it just wouldn't at all. Um, but increasingly, the, the plan was always to just use, to not use any digital effects. Because my theory was that now, you know, with synths, with samplers, with pedals, with you, know, you can do this on your phone. You can do it on GarageBand and, and brilliantly as well. And I'm, I'm, happy, I'm very happy about that. I think there's a lot of fantastic electronic music being made. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of very beautiful stuff out there at the moment. But I think it's quite interesting to do something where you go, right, well, here's what happens if you don't have all that equipment at your disposal, you know? Um, I mean, I made a piece of music once with my friend's kids. I mean, a, a piece of experimental music. Sure. We just had a phone and an iPad. I was staying at their house and we just literally bounced recordings back between the two of them of, of making kind of weird voice noises. And it's weird how quickly it just started to totally come apart. Um, okay. Yeah, and I'm currently, um, do you know Alvin Lucier's I'm Sitting in a Room? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the best example. Literally recording and playing back your voice over and over again until it becomes this amazing sort of, that's all it takes to do that. So I think limitation, I think simply it really makes you push what you've got. Uh, what was his name? Peter Sellers, that was it. Uh, the theatre director. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I listened to an interview with him as part of my, part of my job as, a, as an archive sound engineer, which is my sort of current day job, um, was archiving a large art organisation's tape collection. And he, there was an interview with him. Oh, it is, it's fantastic. I love it. Um, but there was an interview with him as part of their collection. And he's, he said that his policy was to take either a, um, an actor or a tape recorder as two examples that he gave. And what he did was he pushed them and pushed them as hard as he could until they got to a stage where they could no longer uh, bear it or, you know, they reached a point they couldn't go any further. And if I remember his exact words, it was something like, and then suddenly they reveal something of them, something of their essence in the heat and crunch of it all. Hmm. And I was like, wow. yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and so, we, were, we heard the, the short interview you did with Halim al Dab as yes. well, that you had sent over. Amazing. I would have loved to have met him. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, obviously, you know, um, my, my friend on the West Coast, uh, I keep saying, hey, let's go to Akron, Ohio. And uh, I think her exact words were, yeah, you can go. I'm never, you know, why the hell would I want to go to Akron, Ohio? But, um, and I think there's quite a big sort of music scene there as well, right? Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's definitely like a tour stop in the Midwest. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd go, but my, my friend doesn't share our uh, As Americans, we understand what your friend is saying. She's, uh, she's more of a Garth Brooks kind of gal. Mm. Oh, okay. I respect that. I respect that. Um, you know, uh, yeah. she did take me to a country gig once. I think it was Kenny Chesney. Wow. A very interesting evening. 
Okay, you have had a real American experience then. <laughs> Actually, I've never been to a Kenny Chesney no. concert. <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, it, it was a fun night. It was a real, for, for, a, for a British guy, it was my second time in the US. It oh, was wow. a real experience. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> a bunch of country-loving folk cutting loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we haven't even. A lot even, of big no. hats. A lot of big hats. I personally have not had that. We experience. have not dared to to go there ourselves, so that's yeah. you have yeah. one up on us. There. Call me an anthropologist. <laughs> the most American thing I ever did, um, and it was a total coincidence. But uh, we, me and Caitlin, drove over the Golden Gate Bridge, listening to David Hasselhoff sing "Like a Rhinestone Cowboy," and that is the single most American thing ever. I think. But, that is uh, beautiful. His version of it isn't nearly as awful as it should be. It's actually... I've heard that. The guy can sing. It's know? funny. I mean, he's, he's a, a he's hero in Germany, in Europe, right? Yeah, he's yeah. very big in Europe. We, we don't spend a lot of time talking about him here in America as well. <laughs> no, you know? no, no. But, but the idea that other people, other places think he's cool is what we generally think the is cool over about here. him. Cool so Americans about their musical history, though. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we often, you know, because of our interest in the type of music that we make and tape tends to bring us right to the, the doorstep of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Uh-huh, and yes. so we tend to have a lot more conversations with people in the UK than we do in, in America. But now they're coming out of the woodwork. We're finding them. We've got, a, you know, this group called the Cosmic Tape Music Club. And now everyone's getting connected all over the world. And it's really fun. Um, yeah. But it does seem to be something that, you know, most of the people we cover most of the topics, you know, most of the resources, there's a lot of history, you know, in the UK that, or at least that is maybe broke more of a cultural barrier. Like, obviously we have the Columbia Princeton electronic Mm. music center here, you know, things happened in America around electronic music, but there's something about the myth, you know, and the, the fun of the BBC radiophonic workshop that I think, you know, brought tape music to the four and has staying power at this point. Yeah. At least in our little bubble. Myth is the absolutely the right word. I think fun probably not. Because <laughs> I think I, I think the a fun lot of the myth fun. maybe is what I meant. <laughs> I think my impression, and again I should say all of this is conjecture on my part from things I've seen, from things I've watched, from things I've read, and from people I've talked to. I've been lucky enough to meet a few of the old uh, hands of the Radiophonic Workshop over the years. I've been very lucky. Uh, to meet people like Dick Mills um, and Brian uh, Brian Hodgson, both of whom are legends as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Um, you know, um, have you ever I, come across a recording from Unit Delta Plus? I've got quite a few. I've got sort of a few recordings by things like Zinoviev's is EMS mm-hmm. and I've the White Noise records, and I think and there's also a couple of amazing libraries. Rest in peace. Here. Yes, yeah. he's just passed away. Yeah, I met him actually very briefly as well. Um, we were we did a Howround performance at Coventry Cathedral uh, for Delia Derbyshire's 80th birthday. Mm. Um, that was four four years ago, uh, and he was also on the bill. And he sat in this chair with a laptop in front of him. Bear in mind, we did the whole take loop set up. Of course, he doesn't care about that at all. He had a he had a laptop, and he said, "Oh, I haven't tape loops. I haven't seen those for a while." And I was like, yeah, right, Peter. And then he sat there and he said that he'd composed this new piece. Uh, this is true. Uh, he said he'd composed this new piece. And to make the piece, he'd had long conversations with Delia, with Delia Derbyshire of the Radio Fonda Workshop, and Ludwig van Beethoven. I swear I'm not misremembering this. 
And he said he had this thing where he had to try and explain to Beethoven what a, what a loudspeaker was, and he had to explain it was like a like a trumpet in the ceiling or something. And um, and everyone's you know you've got five hundred people sat in this cathedral, and you could almost you could hear everyone going, "What is he talking about?" <laughs> What I wanted to ask him was, uh, I wanted to say, Peter, wh- which was the bigger problem, him being profoundly deaf or profoundly dead? <laughs> it's like, which which one was the was the biggest setback for you? Oh, my he is such a character. He was such a character. It's truly so it's entertaining. I'm making this up, but I swear that's I'm I swear that's what he said. I 100 percent believe you. From yeah. the time we spent researching him and the kinds of reactions we got from people about the things he said, we were like. Actually, He's yeah. Just making stuff up all the time. Now that I think about it, fascinating. Now, his episode yeah. was the worst. Was like the biggest in terms of like negative feedback that we got from people fact checking us about like, the stuff. That's what he says about himself. Half the like, shit none he, of must, it's he true. was saying must have been bullshit because we. <laughs> None of it's true. We were just like, you know, he's such a character. Jack right? got into like a almost like a fight little, with somebody about like quoting, yeah. like he's like, I know that he said this, and that's all I'm saying, you know, like to that like, level. You, we yeah, sure. You you've got to be able to read the absurdity for yourself. I think he believes it. Uh, right. I, I also point. think memory is uh this is a bit of a fascination of mine. I think memory is uh Complete nonsense. I think we all we all claim to remember things clear as day, but uh, I think it's bollocks. Frankly, I think we Great. we only we we only think we remember. Um, we've all had that that sort of moment where you go, you know, oh wow, for years I thought I could have sworn blind that this was it was this way around or it was like this, and now I realise it wasn't. Apparently, there was some experiment in some university done in the early 20th century again don't fact check me i read this a few years a few years ago uh they did this thing where they were having this big debate and these two students got into a really heated row and one of them pulled a gun and shot the other and the police got involved and they made everyone take statements in the entire class but what the class didn't know was that the whole thing had been scripted and they worked out they found out that um a horrifying percent of the students who were eyewitnesses and were in the classroom and saw it all happen in front of them got it completely wrong, their memory of the event. So um, so I'm always a little, I try and be a little patient with people when they say, yeah, it definitely happened like this. I definitely remember it. You know, um, there's so many like gigs I've been to or performances I've done where I was like, that was transcendental. But I guarantee you, if I listen back to a recording of it, it would be like, uh, an early band I was in once got a review. We had a track on a compilation. And it said, to be honest, you really need to see these guys live. And uh, and I was like, no, that's shorthand for this doesn't sound as good as it did when I was like literally off my box at four in the morning <laughs> in some warehouse somewhere. It doesn't sound as good as I remembered it when I was mashed. So I think, you know, I think memory is, uh, which brings us back to tape. I was going to say, you um, did it. You brought it right back. <laughs> you want to talk about a really funny workshop? Sorry. Um we can talk yeah. about whatever. It's just that these are things that are all threads of everything we're talking about. And then, you know. I would love to hear more. I would love to hear the Unit Delta Plus stuff. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, I would say with a lot of these things, if, you, if you've heard the Electrosonic album and the, uh, what is it, ESL? Well, I mean, it's available commercially as the Tomorrow People soundtrack. But right. I think they have, I can't, I think it's just called ESL 104, but it's also the Tomorrow People soundtrack, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you've got those, I mean, that's the real, you know, and you've got, um, you know, some of Warhouse's other work and Delia's other work, you know, that's the, I, I think really we've probably heard 
the best of their work. You know, the Delia Derbyshire tape archive, you know, they did this whole thing 10 years ago where they archived it and it's now available. And a lot of people are saying, where is it? Where's the contents of the archive? And I think the fact is they probably, I think all the amazing stuff we've, and it is amazing, but I think we've probably heard all the really exciting stuff. And I think if we hadn't, I mean, um, you know, if you listen to Dance from Noah, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. It's just, it's magnificent. I mean, how could you top that? You know, yeah. or Blue Bells and Golden Sands. It's just, it's a perfect, yeah. you know. I think for me, like there's this element of like at the sort of wanting to get as close to being in the room with them as I can. Mm. Um, I, yeah. So like those Unit Delta Plus sessions, like I just, there's something really, really mysterious about that, that I, I want to just feel a little closer to it. It sounds like, I mean, uh, from from depictions in films, and uh, I, I can't yeah. talk about this, but stories I've heard and interviews I've read and that particular Delia Derbyshire film that came out, I think getting close to it might have been unwise. I think you might have been sort of like enwrapped in some kind of whirlwind of drug use and orgies, and allegedly. Like, um, maybe we can't handle the truth. Yeah, kind that's of. not <laughs> I, do, I actually think, um, I I. I, and it, I found the Delia movie. I, I loved it. I, I was very happy it got made. But I think, I think making making her out to be a, I, I don't think in any way she was a happy person. Really, I think. Yeah, that's the impression we get. The sad, tragic fact is that Delia pretty much went to her grave convinced that nobody remembered her and that nobody cared about her work and now she's lauded as this pioneer and rightly so you know um point that we are living in this era where it's like she's with us still yeah and i I, I, enjoy it too but she's not no not at all and this is the other thing i mean there's been things i've heard recently where people have been taking her makeup tapes you know, kind of scratch uh, snatches of, of things she was working on or ideas or whatever. And they've been kind of combining them. Mm-hmm. They've been sort of combining them maybe with samples of her voice or they've been using bits of text. And I'm like, uh, I got called curmudgeonly for this. Uh, you know, I mean, people don't agree with me about this. I got called very... I strong feelings around this, for sure. But, I, but as I said at the time, you don't take some artist's sketchbook and just start daubing new colours over the top of it. You don't do that. I mean, if if we could if we could hear the original work, even if it is in fragments, I would rather hear the fragments of what she made herself than it's and it's the same with people doing remixes. I'm not I hate like techno remixes of the doors. Oh, no, no. It's like that. <laughs> the trouble is every now and again one will come along that's so brilliant that you'll go, all right, fair enough. I but the vast majority of it, the vast majority of it. Like when people were remixing Pierre Henry or or uh, uh, the, there's a Telex remix album that came out, and you're like, guys, you can't top this stuff. And by trying to, by trying to like add new stuff to it, you're just, it's. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit bitchy now. Um, oh, we love it. it. <laughs> I, I I don't I I think it is unwise to start adding new bits to, even if it's unfinished, to to composers' work. I think. Um, you know, it's. Yeah. Do you think this comes from maybe your your stance as an archivist too, for your work as an archivist? That's a very good point. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Great. I, um, because uh, I do. I think the role of an archive and is to is to make this work available, and I'm 
you know, and I'm and I'm super happy that all these records are coming out and I get to hear them. Because if I'm honest, when I was a student, I didn't really know who the Radiophonic Workshop was. It was sort of something that was on the credits of Doctor Who, but I hadn't really looked into it because at the time I was still making or trying to make really bad, really bad student drum and bass tracks and sort of, you know, and I was like, oh, can I sample that and put a breakbeat underneath it? And it was uh, awful. No one's ever going to hear that stuff. Um, but then it, but it's you know, but I I got into the Radiophonic Workshop initially because people that I liked like Luke Viber and Wagon Christ and because like, they sampled it, yeah. you know, uh, Luke Viber sampled John John Baker on a Wagon Christ track, and then I saw a documentary on it. And I was like, oh, that's a Wagon Christ sample, and you know, um, so I'm a big kind of, fan of yeah, uh, Wagon Christ. Oh yeah, no, I mean the, the guys are. Yeah. The guy's a legend, don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, but that's how I got in. I got into everything I got into. I got into through dance music, through techno, through jungle, through drum and bass. Um, me too. And yeah. Picking the samples and going, ah, okay, so that's where that comes from. And then gradually you find that the original work is actually a lot more interesting than what subsequent generations have done with it. And this, this, is, still a, this is still something I have now. I find that... I would rather hear the original version, even if it's a bit rough around the edges, even if it's a bit um, fragmented. I'd rather hear what it is than hear it sort of taken and remixed and and primped and, you know. Um, obviously, it's all subjective. You know, sometimes someone will do just the right thing, but I find so often you don't need to add layers of gilding to things. You know, they're kind of interesting as they, as they are. Um, and I think I, I was going to say, just to go back to another point, I think the really interesting thing about the Radiophonic Workshop, and, and forgive me if many, you've heard this many times before, but I think it's worth pointing out, is that in, you know, Columbia, Princeton, in the San Francisco Tape Music Center, in places in Germany, in Paris, I'm not going to pronounce the thing in Paris because my French is awful, <laughs> but what they were, were research institutes. They were funded, they were given equipped, they were given Re the latest equipment you know the most sort of advanced equipment they had and it was research and it was trying to find new ways of composing and new ways of sculpting sounds and new ways of listening as well mm -hmm. um very important very loyal very admirable that they that they that they did that, that those facilities were made available but in britain it was like it was a it, it wasn't a jolly it was literally mm -hmm. you know um, we've got to make uh, the theme tune for this new radio program or a radio jingle, or we've got to make, you know, and we've got two weeks, we've got a couple of tape machines, a couple of oscillators, some whistles and some bells. And again, the limitation, like they didn't actually have that much equipment and it was very basic stuff. You know, you've got more technology in your, in your phone than they mm -hmm. had in the entire studio. Um, so it was literally right. How can we make? Uh, well, the, the the example I always give is uh, Brian Hodgson's TARDIS sound effect. The brief was: we want the sound of time and space itself being ripped apart, and that was achieved with a front door key scraped on the wires of a piano. You know, because and and again, it was like you know, on the continent, maybe you'd sort of run it through some huge sort of uh, device and just have all these crazy things happen. But they were. It was just like right. Uh, we need this by next week. We haven't got really much of a budget. We haven't got much equipment. How can we push it to make it sound? And that, so there's a twofold thing. On the one hand, it's the limitation, the pushing it as hard as you can to try and get interesting things out of the most basic objects. And another thing is that, uh, and again, I, I, you probably get this thousands of times, is, is, is that, that then ended up going out on Saturday afternoon, on Saturday evenings, on the main TV right. channel. 
you know, so into people's living rooms around tea time. You've got the sound, you know, um, I am the biggest, biggest fan in the world of, you know, all the work that uh, people like Pierre-Henri, Pierre Schaeffer uh, were doing in, in Paris and in, and in France and, and, and Stockhausen as well in Germany and, you know, and all those, I mean, it's incredible and it's, you know, but it was a very academic exercise. Yes. And although it's, it's, I, it's still for me counts as the future and still counts as far out adventurous listening. It's somewhere I go to now because I'm mature and sophisticated and I've, you know, uh, well, allegedly, um, <laughs> was literally going out to kids, to families, Saturday tea time, eating your dinner, hearing the sounds of the future. Um, and if you look at the sort of British electronic music um, over the last 40 years, you can totally see how many musicians were kids in the 70s, in the late 60s and 70s, listening to all these strange sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and, I, and I, so I think that was the one thing that, that was the one sort of side effect of that is that this stuff was coming out into the real world, whether, whether people liked it or not. <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. I love the idea of people being like, you know, just, you know, they're, blindsided yeah. or, you know, like there's, there's not like they can just go on YouTube. Almost like we're tricked you had, that was all you could digesting to. it. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, we're just going to drop this extremely strange, completely drugged out stuff on you <laughs> yeah. right now while you're having tea. In your PE class as well, in your school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this amazing uh, BBC LP called uh, Movement, Mime and Music. Mm-hmm. And on the one side, it's, you know, got samples of different noises, marching and things like that. But on the other side, it's got radiophonic pieces. So it's got, um, it's got Delia. It's got John Baker's structures, which if I, I don't know, if I had to pick one truly incredible piece of radiophonic music it just might be structures because to me it still sounds like outer space it still sounds like a brave new world it still sounds like the unknown like the uncanny mm-hmm. and this is like being played in a school gymnasium and people <laughs> pretending to be trees or pretending to be frogs or pretending to be going into space you know it's like so and the thing is i can't really talk knowledgeably about this because this was old when i was growing up mm-hmm. we didn't you know there wasn't any of this left um, but one of the things I've seen in my archive job is uh, a box set called Creating Music in Class. And it's a 1976 teacher's package. Mm-hmm. And it's got five little spools of reel-to-reel tape on it and a whole bunch of graphic scores. And it's effectively teaching 10 to 13-year-old children in the 1970s how to make experimental music or how to be more adventurous in there. And you're like, what? <laughs> the bad thing is that the tapes mostly are just listening exercises, but there are a couple of realizations of the scores on the tapes, you know, 90-second pieces. And you're like, and it sounds like what the grown-ups were doing. You know, and you're like, holy crap. But when I was growing up, I swear we never had anything like that. So we um, certainly didn't. We're yeah, just no, super no. nostalgic for what was right before us. And I, you know, I don't think anybody did in this country. You know, yeah. I don't even think they got the what you're talking about. We mine from the UK a lot. <laughs> but the but the thing is, again, um, yeah, they say that you know, I've, I heard somebody say once that you're obsessed with what you just missed, the generation oh, you just missed. I think that's very. I think because when I was growing up, like you know, the late seventies was still lingering on so there was still like you know every every sort of saturday afternoon kids programs or whatever they'd always be accompanied by cautionary tales public information films public service announcements of like kids with 
really unfashionable bowler hair, bowl haircuts and flares, sort of, you know, oh, my Frisbee's gone into the substation. Just wait here. I'll be back in a couple of uneventful minutes. <laughs> and then the next thing you see, brain pipe trousers on fire. Um, you know, um, but so, and, and I totally, you know, I still can't see a pylon without hearing a kind of modular synthesizer sort of ominously noodling in the background. It's, it's written into like uh, your DNA almost. Yeah. But if I'm honest, electronic music wasn't a big part of my childhood, but I realize now that sound was. I, I, in a really childish way, I started to listen to sounds, not in a sort of, wow, what a, what a bright little boy. <laughs> I, not at all. I just, I just sort of looking back at things I watched when I was a kid, nothing interesting really um i noticed that the sound of it the rhythm of words of people that people were saying and like there was something on fighter planes that i watched over and over again as a kid and i watched and i realized when i watched it back that the, the sound of the engines and the the particular rhythm of the, the yeah and it was i was like i remembered it verbatim which totally contradicts what i was saying earlier about memory but um <laughs> But, but you remember well, that I can you just said think that. in my mind like sure he did you know like <laughs> it's, it's yeah it's, it's um, but, but you're pointing to something that we we see a lot and that we've felt in our lives too is that there's a there's that thread of listening or paying attention or being interested in sound and rhythm that's not happening from an instrument yes happening yes, in the world that yeah. you're just you're going wait those ching- things in the distance that are clinking together they sound like a song to me yeah and, yeah it was, uh, and, and again, when you're a kid, your sort of mind is kind of so like open to things without even realizing you're doing it, that you're soaking it all up without even noticing. I remember when I was when I was like a, a, a small child, I could listen to um, I could remember I could memorize like something off the TV because we didn't have a video recorder. I could memorize <laughs> almost verbatim just after one go. Now I can't do that. But I would sort of. I, I, again, it's it's so weird, like the electronic music thing, because when it happened, I liked it, but I didn't. It didn't occur to me that this was it a was, thing. That I liked. It was baked in somewhere into your yeah, it was, perception or something. Yeah, and it's electronic music was like this sort of. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah. I think that's it. It was it was a thing that it didn't occur to me that I liked it because there were so many other things that I liked as well. And I think when you're a kid, you, you just accept everything. And it's only later on that you go, uh, you know, like, like kids TV, like, you know, some of the programs you liked or you, well, they were just on, you know, the, the TV was just on, you know, you weren't, it didn't really matter if it wasn't any good. I mean, some of the stuff I've watched as an adult and I'm like, Holy, this is terrible. This is the what, but, but you, when you're a kid, I think your critical faculties aren't there. So you just watch, you just listen, you just take in. And it, you don't, it doesn't occur to you whether it's good or not, unless it's very specifically bad or very specific. <laughs> you know, you just take it all in. And it's only later that you think about how you took it in and you go, oh, actually, I must have really, that sound must have really spoken to me somehow. Um, there's, a, there's a kid's TV show called Picture Box. Uh, you'll find the intro on YouTube. Oh yes, I've seen uh, this. Yeah, yes. Larry Bashay's music, and yeah. and and I still remember like thinking how strange and haunting it was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But I didn't go. I must now. You know, it wasn't like a kind of. I wonder if he'll make electronic music one day. 
you know, it yes, was just, yes, yes. I've posted that before because I do, I don't have any connection to it. I just enjoy it. And it always gets that, like, please take this off. It's so tri- so triggering for me. <laughs> if you watch the title sequence as well, you've got this kind of jeweled casket. Yes. Revolving with the spotlight on it. Yeah. It just looks like cool colors to me, but I didn't know that, yeah. what, that what's there, what's behind it. <laughs> you know, what, what's yeah. the message really? But the, I think the strangeness of it, Mm-hmm. Is, you know the, of the whole thing the music and the image but yeah there's the, like a sound in the beginning that people say just like makes them feel strange and they don't like yeah it's, from their childhood yeah it's so yeah I, I i think it's only later on that you realize that it, it was having an effect on you it was um you know i didn't um also um my dad when i was a baby played me oxygen by jean Jacques when i when i wouldn't go to sleep apparently and um, and I always wow. loved, always love that album, um, and I think I think in some way that that you know the memory of that I think definitely sowed a seed. But but again, it wasn't like I'm going to do music now. That didn't happen for like another till I was like eleven or twelve when I suddenly went. Music's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was. Have you seen him play live, uh, Jean-Michel? No, I met him once. I got I got a selfie with him. Oh, um, wow. Uh, and I sent the self. I, I I don't do selfies. I've done two selfies in my life. One was with Jean Bourgeois. One was with Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theatre. Um, and uh, yeah, I sent it to my dad, and I was like, "It's me and Jean Bourgeois." And he said, "Wow, we used to play you his album when you wouldn't repay." And I was like, "I know, Dad. That's why I'm sending it to you." <laughs> but the thing is, I I remember loving that album, but not being it not being a thing. You know, I didn't. You weren't going. It. This is electronic music, and I'm going to make this now. I You're just like right. but there was something there's a weird thing that I used to have when I was a kid there were certain sounds on the album certain noises that um were like uh, I, I, it sounds really silly explaining it and I think the sleeve art might have something to do with it but there's a certain sound in the in the in one in one of the pieces that's the sound of the nose and there's a certain other sound which is the eye uh and yes yeah, so it sounds like something that child and was, that sound, yeah. the nose sound is orange. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have that? Does that, did that carry on for you? In, no, not at all. Not at all. I um, I do have a friend who used to have she she has no sense of smell following a car accident when she oh. was a teenager, but she could smell music. Um, but I do have I have noticed this thing where I uh, like if I if I'm really concentrating on a piece of music, if I'm making something and I'm listening back to it, I notice I do this thing where my hands sort of go into these kind of claws like this. It's like I'm trying to hold it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's like I'm trying to grasp it, um, you know, or I, I can't listen to a certain piece of music without wiggling my fingers. And it's it's sort of like, I don't know, it's sort of, I, I think I realised that music and sound has, that has shaped, has a shape. It has mass, yeah. It has, yeah, and, and, um, and I could never describe it or draw it or, but it was like, it was like a wiggling thing that just sort of, you know. Um, yeah, that, that reminds me of like graphic scores or something. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So you start to, and people say, you know, they say that sounds are round or they're, well, we have square waves, don't we? And we have, you know, uh, people talk about sounds being globular or sort of um, or wet, you know. Sure. It's, um, you know, so I, I would love to be able to say that I was just like, you know, uh, obsessed with sound from early age. But I think, in some obscure way, I always knew I wanted to like do arty stuff. Like I liked drawing and I liked painting and I liked, uh, you know, so I think 
I always wanted to, and I like telling stories. You know, I was good at telling stories. Well, as good as an eight-year-old boy can be at telling stories. I think they were probably, probably went nowhere and were very self-aggrandizing. But, but it all, I don't I think it, it just, it comes to this thing where you just, you soak it all up without thinking about it. And then later on you go, that must have had an effect. That, you know, mm-hmm. that weird bit of electronic music must have had an effect. That strange old kids program must have had an effect. Mm. Well, if you apply that same rule that you were describing about Walt Disney, which I've actually heard uh, a quote from John Cage as well describe something similar. If we're living our lives, that's the act of life, right? And we're all trying to analyze our lives at the same time. But this principle of like doing it and then analyze, we won't, I don't know, maybe we get to analyze it once we're gone. I don't know. But (laughs) this seems counterproductive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Alan Watts said this as well. I think I've recently got into him. Uh, I say I've watched a few YouTube videos and read one of his audiobooks. I don't know if that's getting into it, but he talks about this. He said the surest way to be unhappy is to ask yourself if you're happy. The surest <laughs> way to stop enjoying something is to ask yourself if you're enjoying it, and it's so true. Um, what actually got into music was uh, 11 years old watching a band called Alternate on top of the pops. They did they did break America sort of. I don't know if they alternate alternate. Oh, it's. Uh, Altern dash eight. I was going to say there's an eight in there. Yeah. There is. Alternate. So all their track titles or a lot of them had like that joke where it was like hallucinate, oh. uh, hypnotic state, um, activate. Um, wow, they must, really ran with that. Must have been something like eight, that sort of thing. Um, but they were on top of the pops and they were performing uh, a song called Activate. And the song had like robot laser noises in it. And I would have been 11. And I just went, it's got robot laser noises in it. And suddenly I'm interested. It's like, you know, I like this now. And um, yeah. Like the disco lasers, like boom, 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 um, boom, boom, Like that kind of thing or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not too, but it had this like weird synth of like. And I was just like, oh, oh yeah, I like this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, and then the landslide into just complete obsession weirdly hasn't ever stopped, and I think it's got worse. I think I'm actually now, it's, I might have gone too far because I've always been obsessed with it, but the bizarre thing is that now I'm getting more and more obsessed, and, you know, it's like I'm, I, I, want, I want to hear more sound, not less. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, and the more I do... How round, for example, the more frustrating it gets, the more difficult it gets, but the more exciting it gets and the more it seems to open up. So, you know. Um, Does your setup drive that or do you like in terms of are you thinking about the gear first or yeah, like where does that fit into your process chain? Yes, I'm not. Um, I'm not sure. Um, again, limitations. Recently, I had this thing where I was just using one machine and a microphone. Oh, cool. And I'd watched this Heimbach video uh, where he did this thing where he blocked off the, the erase head on the tape recorder, mm-hmm. put a loop through it. And I was like, oh, yeah, you can do that. And I'd never really experimented with it before, but I only really had one machine with me and this microphone. And I was basically trying to conduct this kind of uh, seance where I was trying to convince my housemate the flat was haunted. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it didn't work, but I did get some amazing results, uh, sounds as a result. And I realized what you could do... Um, you know, just with that, just with, uh, and then I, I, I don't know. Um, 
that's a, it's, it's, I, I really am not sure. Um, but what I try and do is approach it every time. Um, cause you, you always fall back into the old habits, right? Right. I, I guess. Yeah. Am I saying, are you deliberate about it or do you let just like whatever's around now I'm going to play with this or is it like a meticulous setup process beforehand? Uh, nothing I do is ever meticulous. I'm a mess. Basically. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of comes with the territory. I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, um, I had a thing where I, uh, recorded something at a very slow speed and then accidentally played it back at the wrong speed, like much, much faster. And instead of it being, um, instead of it sounding awful, I was like, wow, it suddenly sounded really fractured and really like insane. Yep. And I was just like, right, that is, you know, so, um, it's a, it's a weird thing. You just, I don't know the, I think also like I started off using field recordings so the first album was an entire building. The second album was a ruined building. The third album, I think, was a gate. The fourth album was a hinge. Uh, and then the the two new albums, or well, certainly the one before that, actually, I'm, I'm losing count, was the sounds of the machines themselves, like like closed impulse. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So the weird thing is that the further along I go, the more into the machines I go and the more... Oh, yeah, I, I see that pattern. Go, mm-hmm. You know, and then I did a thing the other day where... Uh, I I was literally just feeding two machines against each other and I was giving them nothing. It was silent. But they started going... And they, um, and they just started... And I would occasionally adjust the EQ just a little bit, but they'd start just making all these crazy sounds all on their own. Um, and then I did a thing um, for my friend's birthday where I recorded myself singing Happy Birthday... Uh, uh, as long and as slow as I could into the microphone. And then I played it back at the wrong speed and it sounded like a wax cylinder recording. And the, the, the tune was completely obliterated. Um, I sent it to her <laughs> on her birthday. I got a message back five minutes later saying, I'm guessing this is you, Fog. <laughs> <laughs> you freak David out. That's her boyfriend, uh, who makes a lot of weird noises himself, actually. So he should be used to this. Um, I think for some reason my name didn't come up on the chat or whatever, but, uh, you know, she's still speaking to me just about, but, but it's just, I don't know. It, it's, I mean, there are, and for all I'm saying, there are days when nothing really gets done and like, you know, you make something that's not quite as good as the thing you made yesterday, or it's the same idea. Um, you know, but so often, I don't know, just, just, I can't explain it. It's just stuff happens. Stuff happens, and then you listen totally back. To acceptable it. answer. Yeah, that's right. go, how did that? What was that? What? When? How did we do that? Where did that come from? And yeah, um, I have and, a track yeah. on um, an album called A Creek Retimed, which is a actually Steve's film. It's an album of responses <laughs> to that film. So the film came out, the album came out. Uh, did very nicely, won a few awards, which was great. Oh. Uh, you know. Not like, you know, like, uh, not a BAFTA or an Oscar, but, you know, nice, nice. There's other awards. The they European are still circuit, And it, it, it was very well received. But um, but he made an album, or he commissioned an album of artist responses to it. And two of the tracks were unissued uh, Howround tracks from the from the sessions. But one of those tracks was literally, um, I spooled up a, a bit of, a bit, a reel of tape. And I was like, right, I need, I need a new empty reel to record onto uh i don't think there's anything important on this but i'll play it just to be just to be sure and uh and i started playing it and i was like what is that and there was this kind of like kind of this kind of rhythm and it had other things coming in and out of it and there was like little bits of voices in there and there were these kind of um 
And I was like, right, I know this is something I've made. I know it. I recognize something. Somehow I recognize it, but I could not tell you. How am I doing that? That's a rhythm. And rhythms are quite hard to do as tape loops because they tend to be quite, um, you know, stretchy in a nice way, but they tend to sort of, you know, the rhythm tends to be a bit all over the place. But this was almost like a metronome. And I was like, I have no idea how I've done this. Um, but there was nine minutes of it and it noodled a bit. You know, I was obviously trying something out. I was obviously like, you know, having a go at something and I have no reference and, and the finished piece is literally I went right there's a minute there that it worked there's four minutes or there's two yeah. minutes there, and I just literally edited it down to that and that's that's the piece and I have no recollection of making it and I have no idea how I made it absolutely no idea I, all I know is that it was made um, at some point that's awesome it's the best thing in the world and I'm, I'm just gonna put some lights on because I've realized I'm sat here in the dark <laughs> <laughs> um and also I I I think as well, the fun of it, the joy of it is seeing where it goes. I think, again, I, I think I'm repeating myself, but if you wouldn't, but if you knew what you were going to get when you started, somebody once said to me, oh, you know, electronic music, you just press a button and the computer does it all for you. And I said, but well, where, where would be the fun in that? Where's the joy in that? If I was making 10 grand every time I press that button, it would, you know, uh, that would be brilliant. But, but I'm not... But, where where would be the fun in just letting a computer do all the work? It's much more fun to, you know, roll up your sleeves and see where you end up. Well, I think yeah. you're speaking to that that thing that we study a lot in, in what we're doing is that the the pioneers of early electronic music that we've read about were really excited about computers and really excited about automation and really excited about getting it kind of out of their hands. Mm, yeah. Some people, not everyone. Not but, everybody. But we, as you were saying, are nostalgic for something we just missed. And... Yeah. We've always had this thing that makes things too easy. Yeah. Uh, and so we want to get back to using our hands. And that's a lot of what we talk about with our audience and our fans and other people who are kind of into this kind of thing is that we stare at screens all day. We're tired of computers. We know they make life easier, but it's just, where's the fun in it? Exactly. And the bizarre thing is that now you get software where the errors are put back in. I mean, that's <laughs> right. crazy you know, um, you can get filters for your Instagram that make it look like it was taken in the 70s. You can add, you know, add blurred colors and uh, mm. you can add lens, not on Instagram, maybe, but you can add lens flare. You yes. can add film grain. You know, all the things that like for the people we admire would have been like, ah, damn it. I wish there was a way we could get rid of film grain or I wish there was a way we could make this sound a bit less wobbly and wobbly. You know, it's... A lot of people are using tape. I've just I've just written this thing for the wire about tape. Yes, of course. Yes, we want to hear about and, this. Uh, yeah, well, I, I can't reveal anything. No, no, top secret, fun. top secret. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, but w one of the points I I really wanted to make clear was that tape now is often used as a kind of shorthand for you know warble and fuzz and decay, decay and degradation and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and not just because of um, William Bozinski, who, I mean, you know, the disintegration loops is just a magnificent piece of work. It's a towering achievement. Um, but a lot of people do use tape, yeah, to, to crunch things up, to get this idea of degradation, fuzz, of decay. But we forget that it's actually an amazing sort of sculptural tool as well. Mm -hmm. And what I try and do with HowlRound now, and I, because, you know, HowlRound's early material, you know, is based a lot on that. It's based on this idea of tape as a fragile medium. And I still think that's beautiful. But what I try and do, and, and there's still elements of that in Harrow now, but I do try and also have it as, as an actual, as the tape being, a, you know, 
of the tape sort of uh, being the creative force of the track as well. Like, you know, not just degradation and decay, but actually, um, you know, kind of like a lot of the new stuff is really quite blistering. There's no degradation in it. It's just raw kind of feedback. Um, but also just, you know, just because you can edit tape in such an amazing way, you know, with a, if you've got an editing block and a razor blade, a sharp razor blade and some splicing tape, you can literally do some incredible things. I mean, John Baker um, would measure out the notes. He would get all the pitch correct, he would measure out the notes and he could work out how to cut a note slightly short so that it would anticipate the beat and it would give it a swing, you know. Yes, we love this do that with millimetres of tape. But, you know, so it's... And the Which thing again, is- I think there was also a thought of like, wow, I wish this was easier. But for us, we're like, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't be what it was. It wouldn't. It wouldn't that be is the thing I'm interested in. It was, um, you know, once you get quantizing, you know, and, once, and there's nothing wrong with any of these things, but once you no. get that, the, the swing that he was looking for isn't there. Like computers, I think, you know, they try and put everything onto a grid. But... There is something to be said for just, you know, just seeing where it goes. And often, you know, and like it's like when you sort of suddenly decide you're going to colour outside the lines or you're going to just sort of, you know. Um, there's just yeah, there's going to be an outside that. judgment about that or even an internal judgment that's been that's come from the outside that yeah. there is something wrong with this. Like we were talking about before, fighting that impulse to go back into the DAW and put things back into the structured it, place. Yeah. yeah. It's when I used to draw, when I used to doodle when I was a kid, I used to get so frustrated because I'd get it wrong. I'd, I'd make a line wrong or I'd, uh, you know, or and I'd be like, oh, it's ruined now. I've ruined the whole thing. It was going so well. But the bizarre thing is that as I've got older, because I still doodle a bit, um, I've just left them in. I've just left the mistakes in. And, and event, you know, and, I, and I've sort of like almost encouraged mistakes. I've just sort of gone really fast and just almost tried to get it wrong deliberately when I'm drawing. And the weird thing is, although it's not perfect, it's certainly got somehow more character than if I'd done it completely right and I'd got it absolutely pristine. It's got that sort of, you know... Um, that, yeah. That's um, a beautiful sentiment. sentiment and yeah. I think that is a good wrapping point for this conversation in, in, a, in its official capacity. <laughs> I have talked for a long time, but it's been a, it's been such a pleasure though. No, not at all. I mean, we could go all night. This is what we love talking about. If you find someone who actually wants to talk to us about it, I mean, we we will not let you leave this square on our screen. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like this needs to be like a seven day, seven part series where we just talk every day for a while. You know, I feel like that could really get it out. You don't know what, what's going to (laughs) come out of it. Right. All right. Okay. Um, uh, The trouble is this is why I haven't got into synths actually because it's infinite mm-hmm. you, and I just I my brain doesn't work like there's so much I could potentially do with a synth and it could just go on and on for days and days and days and it would be great it'd be so much fun um but it kind of freaks me out I'm just like oh uh no yeah if you're not already in that I would say stay away for sure yeah. so, <laughs> too many too much too many possibilities I'm like ah you know that thing where you've got infinite possibilities and you just go None. I'll do nothing. Uh, nothing. nothing. Uh, uh. I would say that it's the biggest ex- exercise for self-control in my life. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Ah, like nice. Keeping that restrained, you know, like not just wanting after any and every module. I mean, first of all, I've stuck to a pretty esoteric format that helps. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that many modules available, you know. So it's Well, like, right. That was one of your things. You're like, if I get into Bukla, then there's only so many modules. So. Right. 
Yeah. Like I could build them all and still not have that big of a system, <laughs> you know, whereas like the, the Eurorack stuff is just, I mean, it's just, yeah. Insanity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, like, like I said, plugins in the early 2000s yes, yes. or late nineties. It got really silly, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nostalgic for that era though of music production. So that's something I've been sort oh, of yes. like revisiting. Oh, no. I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but I've just been like, you know, re imagine uh, re experiencing like the OS nine, like plugins and stuff. And I feel like there's some really, that was an interesting era in music software because I felt like a lot of the, um, it was, it was very new in terms of like DSP and stuff. And so I, mm. I just feel like a lot of brain power was going into it mm. yeah. at that time specifically. And a lot of those people moved on to other things or pulled out or, you know, whatever, like their company went belly up. And, and so like, there's these like applications that you can get for OS nine. And a lot of it's like abandonware. Um, mm. oh, it's really interesting. Well. Yeah. 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 And, and free. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange how it's, we yeah we've sort of gone backwards it's come out of the computer yes. onto the table and um you know because remember like uh what was it the software that actually had the virtual patch bay with actual oh, yeah, like, reason. reason yeah that's how i yeah, learned reason and yeah. rebirth mm-hmm. with actual patch cables that like wiggled when you moved yes. them and all mm-hmm. stuff you know um yeah. and now we actually actually have that and actual actual faders uh, pots with little drop shadow on them so that they look 3D. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, that's so weird. Beautiful weird. Yes. But, you know. It is interesting, the evolution, just to, like, see the whole history of where we're at right now. We love talking about it, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. So, no, no, I'm not talking about it. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's really cool. We've, we've sort of gone backwards in order to go forwards in a good way, I think. Mm-hmm. Not to tell on myself too much, but that is something my therapist told me this week. <laughs> that if I'm going to take a baby step forward, sometimes it feels like you're going back, but you're just getting momentum. Yeah, I think that's uh, if I had a therapist, and <laughs> enough people have said I ought to. Um, yeah, <laughs> like don't want to claim that quote for myself. That was from her, but oh, that, I think it, that's really on my mind. And I like what you said about that. Like, in order to go forward, you do sometimes. Need, well, I think always but go back and see get what was going on what's really needing to be advanced yeah i think that's it's better than just treading water which is you know and it's so easy to do that it's so easy to live in this kind of permanent stasis of just sort of you know endlessly recycling um oh my gosh yes yeah you know, a bit of regression i think can actually it's move yeah move you forward I love it. Well, I'm going to thank you. We've got deep, haven't we? We really have. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. We're so happy to have you with us here. Robin the Fog, can you tell us uh, where people can find your music and, you know, if you have a website or where you want to point them, we're going to put that in the show notes. Okay. Um, Well, you can visit robinthefog.com, which is my kind of main website. If you go to the About page, there's a wonderful shot of me bending over a tape machine, looking both competent and sort of weirdly, um, I don't know, there's a black and white photo, which catches me in my best light. Uh, (laughs) I look sort of weirdly mercurial and and sort of, you know, commanding, which is not a state I spend much time in. So robinthefog.com forward slash about, start there. Look at that simmering picture of me smouldering. Uh, and then you can listen to music. Um, there's also howlround.co.uk, which is the sort of special site just for the HowlRound project. Although there is 
around stuff on robinthefog.com as well. I'm on Twitter at robinthefog. I'm on Instagram at robinthefog. Um, or you can, if you find yourself in Penge in South London, you can pop around. The kettle's always on. Uh, I'll play you some weird noises and we'll we'll have fun. And um, yeah. But you guys are totally welcome around anytime you like. I was going to say, be Thank careful so now. Much. We're gonna we're gonna take you up on that. I'm oh, British technically, so you know, ah. it's just a matter of coming home. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Ah, well, there is nothing I like more than having people around and uh, mucking around with weird noises. So uh, it's an open call. If any of you guys are in Penge, uh, anyone knows where Penge is. But if you are. <laughs> No, seriously, in London, nobody knows what Penge is. I love the idea that someone who listens to the Cosmic Tip Music Club podcast is going to show up on your doorstep ready to play the tape. I can't wait for that to be something that actually happens. (laughs) If they're they're up for a bit of experimentation and they can hold their tea, then, uh, you know, let let the games begin.